So I just want to say good morning again. Uh, my name is Stephen. I forgot to say that earlier. I'm the family pastor here at Crosswinds Church. And I have the honor and privilege to be preaching this morning. Every time I get the chance to preach, I gain so much more respect and admiration for the pastors that do this week in and week out. Uh, it's a lot of work, and they're truly amazing. So before we jump into the sermon, we're actually going to read through uh, our passage, and one of our elders, Ryan, is going to come up and read that for us. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus 32. Uh, we'll also have it up here on the screen as well. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation, and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down. For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he, did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham? Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, 
What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, not let, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Thanks, Ryan. As we get started, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, that you've revealed yourself to us. And I pray that we would see you for who you are as we look at this today with humble hearts to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Exodus 32, which we just read. And my goal today is for us to see how the story of Israel is our story as well. This cross-section of reality of what it means to be human in relationship to God who is constantly at work in Israel's story and in ours. But this is sadly not a new story. This is the story that has been happening since the Garden of Eden, that God shows his kindness and his goodness, and man rebels. And then there's judgment and provision. Right? I said, going back to the Garden, God creates everything. He gives all these good gifts to Adam and Eve. Everything is good and perfect. And yet they listen to Satan and eat of the tree they were told not to and rebel against God. And then just a few chapters later in Genesis, again, we see that man's heart has been set on evil. And so God sends a flood. This happens over and over again. And we see that even just in the few chapters of Genesis. And it happens again in Judges over and over. That it, Judges is defined by the cycle of sin. So this is the story that happens again and again. So as we go th through this, we need to ask, how is Israel's story my story too? 
And before we jump into the details of Exodus 32, I want to catch us up on the whole story of Exodus. It maybe has been a while since you've read Exodus or watched The Prince of Egypt, so I'll catch us up. So Israel is in the land of Egypt, living side by side with the Egyptians, and a king rises up that says, hey, there's a lot of them. If they ever wanted to, they could destroy us, so let's put them in slavery. And so they become enslaved to the Egyptians. And in the midst of their oppression, God hears their cries. And it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, also known as Jacob. So God raises up Moses to be his spokesperson. And God fights for Israel in what we call the ten plagues. And they are released from slavery on no act of their own. It is only because God has fought for them. And God humiliates Egypt, taking down their gods one by one with each of the ten plagues. So Pharaoh finally lets the people go, yet as they're partway away, he changes his mind. He's like, what? I'm the greatest in the world. I can't let them go. And so he pursues after them, and they meet at the Red Sea, where again God fights for Israel. Israel passes through on dry ground, and the waves come crashing in on the Egyptians, destroying their army. Israel gets hungry in the wilderness, and God gives them bread and meat that falls from the sky outside their doors. They have done nothing over and over and again, and yet God has done everything. He has poured out his goodness and his kindness on Israel. And then in Exodus 19 through 24, God comes down, makes a covenant with Israel. He gives them the Ten Commandments and tells them details of what it means to follow and worship him, and live in community with one another. And he extends this covenant to them. Do you want to be my people, and will you follow me the way I've outlined? And the people agree. And I want to read that section for us. It's Exodus 24, 3 through 6. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up early the next morning and set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in the basin. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people, and they responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. So Israel has entered into this covenant with God, and now we get to Exodus 32. And it starts with Moses. He's gone back up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandment tablets and instructions on building the tabernacle. And he's left Aaron and her and some of the other elders in charge. And so, but the people come to Aaron. In verse 1, they say, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They're basically like, he's dead for all we know. We don't know what's happened to him. So what are we going to do? He's this connection to this God. He's the one that brought us up out of Egypt. Aaron, make for us new gods. So Aaron, who Moses left in charge in just a few chapters earlier, actually went partway up the mountain with Moses to see God's glory. He's supposed to be leading the people right now, just goes, okay. 
he gathers up all this gold and forms it into the golden calf for the people to worship. What's really interesting is this mention of gold. Because Israel were slaves. They probably didn't have a lot of gold. But as they left Egypt, we see in Exodus 12, 35 and 36, it says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And then the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So even all this stuff they have is just an act of God. He's like, you've got gold, silver, and fine clothes now. And it was meant to show that God fights for his people. He's the one that made his people rich. And I think also is supposed to be used to build the tabernacle that Moses is getting the instructions for. And yet they take this good gift of God and they turn it into an idol and worship it. But not just an idol. I want to look at what Aaron calls this calf in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. The word Lord here is Yahweh. He's saying this is God. And in the previous verse, Aaron actually says, this calf, this, this animal that I built is God and he brought you up out of Egypt. So they gave, they have not only traded their glorious Savior for this rubbish God, they are now mixing the covenant they just made with God a few chapters earlier with their preferences, with what they know culturally, and it's even caused them to rewrite their history. They want a God who looks more like them, who is easier to deal with than the God up on the mountain with Moses. They've rejected intimacy with God because he's scary. And he is. Like, he just took out the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. And the Israelites did nothing. He split the Red Sea and Israel walked through. This God is not to be trifled with. but he freed them. He's provided for them. And he's powerful and he's holy. And so a few chapters earlier in 19, the people get to witness his holiness. It shows that they come to the base of the mountain, God's glory descends on it, and they see it and they are afraid. And they're like, hey, Moses, um, this God's awesome and all. Would you talk to him so he doesn't talk to us anymore? Because that's terrifying. And that's what they say. They step back, they're like, oh, no, let's, let's take a step back from God. Just a little one. And as they take that little step back away from God, we see here they've completely run the opposite direction. So how is this our story? I think we can fall into the same traps that the Israelites did. That we think we know better than God, but our understanding is so limited and God's is infinite. My three-year-old son came out of his room one night. We had put him to bed, and he come out, and he goes, Daddy, my tummy hurts. And he had eaten a big dinner, so I wasn't surprised. That just wasn't settling right. And I was like, hey, bud, let, let's get you back in bed. You can drink some water. Some rest will help. No, I think a cookie would help. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but right? We do that. I do that. We think we know what will satisfy us. We think we know what will fix our problems. 
And like Israel, we can turn away from God to things, to people to give us our hope, our meaning, and purpose. Like, behold the wife or spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend who has delivered me from loneliness. The kids or job that gives me purpose. Both of those I can struggle with. The money or things that bring me happiness. Or the addiction I hide. Or fill in the blank with anything I can put my hopes in. My looks, my sexuality, my body, my income, my stuff, whatever it is. I love how one pastor put it. We, we, we ascribe divine attributes to the stuff of future garage sales. But it goes beyond that. It's not just flat-out idols. We see that Israel is mixing this covenant they've made with God, and they're mixing it with this other stuff. This half true God, and they call the calf Yahweh. We can do that. We like to rewrite versions of Jesus. We have the prosperity Jesus. Oh, if I follow him, he's going to give me whatever I want. Oh, I'd like a new Ferrari, God. The tagalong Jesus. Yeah, I show up and Jesus is around and that's nice. Make me happy, Jesus. Yeah, he, he just makes me happy. He makes me feel better about myself. The transactional Jesus, I go to church, he blesses me, keeps my family healthy and safe. The Jesus who loves everybody. Oh, he just loves everybody. Jesus is all love, so we, we just can't judge anything. The Jesus that looks just like me, has my values, dresses the same way I do. And so anyone who's different doesn't really follow Jesus. I like how one author put it specifically about this. God isn't that safe. He's in charge. Maybe that's why the calf is still an attractive prospect. Given how some Christians treat others, I'm convinced they want God less than they want a golden calf who justifies hatred of whatever group they're angry at this time. Turning God into our mouthpiece rather than us being his. And it's a blasphemy because it results in a brutalized representation of God when God has already made himself visible and present in the world through the person of Jesus. Right? We want to take God and mold him to look just like me, to make me more comfortable. And that's just what Israel did. And it's not just these things. We can act like the Pharisees. Bending God to my will, adding rules and preferences and expecting everybody to follow him. We must see this as a warning because if they could have done all the right declarations, all the right things while still worshiping an idol, we can just as easily fall into that trap. So back to my son. Right, he's three. He has a big problem. Instead of seeking and listening to mine and my wife's wisdom to help him, he decides he knows better. Something I say a lot with our youth, and I want to do this with us, I want you to take your age and subtract five to ten years. Okay, do the math. Would you want that age you making all your decisions for you today? And I think all of us would do a resounding no. And in five or ten years, you're going to say the exact same thing about who you are today. 
because we understand that we grow in wisdom and understanding and we learn to make better decisions so that a future self of mine could probably make better decisions than me now and that I can make better decisions than a past version of myself. But yet we struggle to apply that to God, who is infinitely wise, infinitely in charge, understands how everything works best, and we go, that's nice that you said that, God, but I like this over here. I'm going to go do this. We interact with God like we're little kids. God's like, here, I have the best thing for you. This is going to make you happy. This is going to satisfy you. This is going to make you feel good. I'd rather have cookies. And we may look at Israel and go, how could they do this? This is a calf. This is obviously an idol. It's so similar to the gods of Egypt. And it was. It was a cultural norm to them. They just came out of Egypt. Egyptians had a cow god. And they should have known better. But again, we need to do the same thing. We take our cultural things so normal to us and dive in. And I want to hold up a little mirror to these things. So like social media, right? I post words or pictures so that a few people I like, a few people I don't know, and most I don't really care about, will click a button that's a little thumbs up, and every time someone clicks that, I feel better about myself. Or our looks. I put myself out in the sun to bake like a pot roast at 350 degrees so my skin gets a little darker. Or I wear something to, so I can get compliments when in reality, and I could probably wear the same thing every Sunday and none of you would notice. Or buy new things. If I just get this new thing, I'll be happy. And we buy it and we get this rush of dopamine that lasts for all of three days. And at that point, They've already released the slightly new and better version, which is pretty much the same thing, and we still want it. It's got a better camera. Or rest. I need more and more of doing nothing to get a break from the different nothing I was doing earlier. And we could go on and on with these things, and I make light of these to help us see that we're kind of crazy to invest so much. But you know what? It's normal to be obsessed with social media. It's normal to be obsessed with our looks. It's normal to be obsessed with entertainment or our job or sex. It's totally normal, but it is not godly. That's the world. And we take these good gifts from God, right? Work, entertainment, friends, rest, all of these, and we can idolize them just like Israel. Like Israel, we can take our gifts from God and turn them into sin. We become gluttons for food. We turn God's gift of marriage intimacy into all kinds of sin, our emotions, our possessions, anything. And if I'm really being honest, like these I struggle. I find find myself sometimes posting on social media and checking back every five minutes. Did I get another like? Or that I just want excessive resting, which is really laziness. There's a book I love. It's called You Are What You Love. And it talks about our hearts are wanters. We want something. There is a goal that we desire. And that is what drives our decision-making. That's what drives what we do. 
but sometimes there's a disconnect from what we say we want and what we really do. Like, man, I would love to look like a superhero and have a six-pack. Like, that'd be awesome. But you want to know how I know that that is not what I truly want? I know by the tacos and ice cream that I ate yesterday. Because if I really wanted a six-pack, my life would reflect that. So does what we say we want of God, is that reflected in what we are doing? Are we rejecting intimacy with him like the Israelites did? Are we looking to bend God to look more like me? Pastor John Piper described an idol as something a person values, loves, and desires more than God. It could be a girlfriend, good grades, a thriving business, sexuality. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport or an immaculate yard. Or your own looks could be an idol. It could be anything. If we find God to be so boring or so negligible that we must put other things in his place that really satisfy us more than he does, then we not only offend him, but we destroy ourselves. And those two things make God angry. And that's exactly the reaction we see here. It's God's reaction to Israel. And I think the word anger is an understatement. Like, we get angry over the smallest things. Like, Taco Bell didn't give you enough sauce packets, right? We get angry over that. But God's reaction is wrath. Israel just made a covenant with God. It's like someone cheating on the honeymoon. You just said, I do, and now you've turned your back. You've rejected the one you swore to love forever. This is what Israel has done, and this is what we do when we turn to other things than God. So Israel just committed to not making idols, not making graven images to worship God, and they rebelled and went against him. They rejected God, and his reaction is disdain for their sin. And we might fall into this trap of thinking God has a strong reaction to say, Moses, I'm going to get rid of all of them and start with you. But it's not strange at all because if he didn't hate sin, he wouldn't be good and he wouldn't be God. Sin is to partner with all that is against God to actively revolt. It curses and destroys ourselves, the people around us. And the Bible tells us that it can even affect families for generations. And God does not put up with any of that. And sometimes we fall in, man, I'd like God to be indifferent to my sin, right? Because I can justify my sin. I can excuse it away. But I don't want God to put up with other people's sin. But if God's going to put up with mine, he's going to put up with others, and then evil is now the norm. And that is not our God. Sin is not good for us, however much it may seem logical or harmless. It offends God and it destroys us like a cancer that destroys more and more until we wither away. No sin is good for you. Now I want to pause and answer a big question of this passage for just a moment. Does God change his mind? Because from our perspective, it looks like God changes his mind. He says, Moses, I'm going to get rid of all of them. And Moses has this conversation, and then God says, okay, I'm going to relent. 
Moses steps in. He doesn't make excuses for the people, but pleads based on God's glory and his covenant. And so I want to give you my thoughts on this, this little passage, because there's, there's different ones. And I think what God reveals is exactly what sin deserves. Complete and utter destruction and annihilation. This is exactly what we see from the very beginning, where sin, rejection of God, is linked with death. But one of the major themes in God is God's grace and his mercy. And here we see a picture of God showing us and Israel what they deserved to be completely wiped out. But God, in his infinite knowledge, knowing Moses would implore him otherwise, has a teaching moment. Now, we will see the people face judgment, and many will die over the sin, but God relents from wiping out all of Israel, even though they deserved it. So Moses has this conversation with God. He comes down the mountain to confront Aaron. And Aaron goes, man, don't look at me. You know these people. They're crazy. They ask for weird things. He goes, and anyways, it's not my fault. I just threw some gold in the fire and out jumped a calf. Cue the biggest eye roll from Moses. And we laugh at Aaron, but we can do the same thing. We have the same impulse to convince ourselves we're right and good. We want to blame others for our actions. Have you ever been telling someone a story or or venting to someone about so-and-so in this confrontation or argument you had, and somehow as you relay this story, you come out the saint, and the other person did everything wrong? We do that. We want to justify what we do. Sometimes our impulse to convince ourselves we are right trumps reality. So my wife and I will sometimes watch the show Hoarders, and one of the things that is consistent with people that suffer from compulsive hoarding is that the reality that you and I see is not the reality they see. The reality of rat-infested, moth-eaten things I see as trash, and they're like, no, 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 that's good, I need to keep it. It has value. And so we need to drop the deception and the excuses. Because we don't get to make excuses. Sin is sin. And all sin will eventually be found out, no matter how much we hide it. So we have two options. I can bring it to light myself and repent, or it will be brought out for me. And when it's brought out for me, we should not be like Aaron making excuses for our sin, or is trying to hide it, which we are so, so good at hiding our sin. We love to project that we've got it all together. We have social media where we love to show how happy and how we have it all together. Right? Or it's not even just social media. We have bumper stickers. Like, my kid is an honor student. Look how good my family is. Or when we ask you, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Life is terrible right now, but I'm good. And if we don't deal with our sin, it will destroy us from the inside out. We can't hide it from God. Maybe people, but never God. But we can repent quickly, bring it to light, and that does not negate our sin, but repentance is beautiful and wonderful and should be celebrated. So I want to talk for just a second about how do we protect ourselves, that we don't be like Aaron, who gave into the people, into the persuasion, into the culture around him. 
Aaron is the leader here. So some practical advice for ourselves. Man, it starts with protecting yourself. We've got life groups and Bible studies. Man, jump in there. Get involved in one if you're not. It's a place not only do life together, but, but have accountability where you can come in like, this is hard. And there's not going to be shame there. It's going to be, man, how can we come around you? How can we help you? How can we pray for you? And if you're parents, it's protecting your family. Right? Start simple. Are you, are you protecting your kids on the internet? I talk to so many parents or students who have cell phones, and I'm like, hey, what, do you have any on there to, to help you stay safe on there? No. Man, it's a dangerous world out there on the internet. We should protect their values. Talk to your kids. Most importantly, listen. Know what's going on. Know what their struggles are. Be vulnerable yourself. Talk through what it means to value Jesus greater than anything else. So after Moses confronts Aaron, he destroys the idol, right? This powerful idol that supposedly brought them out of Egypt, Moses just grinds into dust, and they drink it. And Moses calls for those who truly want to follow God, and we see judgment take place. And I think something that is profoundly sad here, Nexus 19, is they're talking through the covenant. God says, you are going to be a kingdom of priests. All of you are going to get to be priests is what he's offering. But because they've rejected God's intimacy, they've rebelled from him, we see here that Levi, because he stepped up to be the hand of God, that he is given the priesthood, the sons of Levi. They rejected intimacy with God, they rejected being his priests, and they got their wish. And I think that is terrifying. What if I truly got some of the things I desired at times? So, so far we've seen how great and good God is and how we rebel in his wrath towards sin. Now we're jumping near the end to verse 30. And we could call this section intercession. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he does. He goes up and he tries to make atonement for the people. He first asks for God to forgive them. And he says, if that can't happen, take me instead. Let me pay the price for Israel's sin. But God said no to both. Judgment would fall on those that sinned. And there is no word for punish, actually, in the Hebrew language. So the word here is actually visit. It says that God's going to visit the sin, or he's going to visit upon the people, visit the sin upon them. So it's remarkable to think about the way we choose to live in a relationship with God changes the outcome when he visits. For those that honored God, his visit would be a blessing. And for those that didn't, it would mean judgment. And we love to emphasize God's love. It gives us the warm fuzzies and makes us feel so great about ourselves. But God is all of his attributes because he is all of them together. I don't get to pick and choose the ones that I like. So yes, God is love. The Bible proclaims it over and over and over again. And the climax of that being the cross. 
but God is also perfect and holy and sin has no part of him. Sin is wretched and disgusting. We also see this in the cross, that someone had to take the punishment and all the wrath for my sin, for your sin. So there's an issue when we sin, we go against the holiness of God, but the cross. And so even though Moses couldn't go and atone for the people's sin, Jesus could. You see, I've majorly messed up with my own golden calves, my own things I've turned to to fulfill, to give me hope. Way too many, way too much heartache around them. When I was in college, I was deeply trying to walk this line where I had Jesus on one side and idols on the other, trying to do both. But I was depressed. It was a dark place. My life was on the verge of crashing and being ruined in so many ways. And I honestly wasn't sure if life was worth living anymore. But Jesus. I got some help I desperately needed and came to see really how great Jesus is when my wanter is pointed all at him. So this isn't some far-off story we are talking about today. This is my story. That even though I've seen God's goodness, I rebel. We rebel, but Jesus has come to rescue and forgive and change our hearts. And that's not just a cute little saying we have in church about changing our hearts. That we're told with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he comes to truly change us to be able to choose what is right. We are freed from being slaves to sin where we can only choose wrong and our hearts have been freed to do what is right. And the more we grow closer to Jesus, the more our heart looks like his, we can choose righteousness by his power. My, my son's little Jesus storybook Bible starts off with this beautiful picture and it says the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's a book of sinners, broken people who desperately need God, who need a Savior. And Jesus is that. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.6, he's just finished talking about a plethora of ways the Israelites have sinned and judgment has come upon them. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil things as they did. He's saying, don't follow in their footsteps. Learn from them. Don't let shame of sin or putting your hope in something else keep you from intimacy with Jesus. Don't keep the sin in the dark. I can say from experience, it's just going to eat you alive. So what's our response? We, for, we flee youthful passions and we look to Jesus. And let there not be a disconnect between my, my want or my heart and the greatness of who Jesus is. So I don't know where you're at, what's going on in your life. But like I said, this is the story of each of us. That God is kind, good, and wonderful towards us, and yet we just rebel. But Jesus came to save 
So where are you in this story? This is what I want you to answer today. We must answer it. So if you're a believer, you're like, I, I love Jesus, I know him, I want my want to be pointed at him, and sometimes I stray, and we repent quickly and we turn to him, that is great, and we should be quick to repent. You may not know Jesus at all. You may just be new here. Someone may have convinced you to come. You may just randomly have clicked online to watch this. But man, we're, you're still rebelling towards God. And Jesus extends just as much mercy and grace to you as long as we forsake our sin and pursue him as our Lord. And there's a third category, and I've seen this often in church. Those who want to claim Jesus but don't live for him. This mixing of taking Jesus and taking my own preferences and smashing them together. Jesus hasn't changed your life, but yet you call yourself a Christian. You maybe know the answers. You maybe went to Awana or Sunday school. But your heart, your wanter isn't pointed at him. And if that's you and you're calling yourself a Christian, you're not. You are not a follower of Jesus. You are living in rebellion like Israel. And so we see the offer to repent this morning. And the beautiful thing is when we repent, we are considered saints. If you've been keeping up with our take up and read that we've been doing this year, we just finished out Hebrews. And Hebrews 11, which we typically call the Hall of Faith, expounds all of these people for their great faith. And I was reading it and I thought it was funny because the picture we see of how these people are described isn't always the picture we see when we read their lives. Like Samson's called this great man of faith, but we see he rejected God for a woman, right? Or Sarah, it says, she stuck out to me, it says that she had faith that God would give her a son in an old age. But if you know what Sarah did when she overhears the promise to have a baby, she laughs. And yet Sarah is in here commended for her faith over it. Because that is the beauty of our God, taking terrible, messed up people like me and calling us great because of what he has done. So where are you in the story? He is rich in kindness and mercy and forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we... We thank you that you invite us into your story. That you love us even though we rebel over and over and over again. Lord, open up our eyes to see these idols, to the ways we've mixed our preferences or our culture with you. And Lord, let us respond in humility towards you. Let our wanters be directed at you. Amen.